The Lord be with you. What's blue and not very heavy? Light blue. On the side of the puzzle, it said three to four years, so I was real proud of myself that it only took me three months to finish it. No. (laughs) I like this one. People are making apocalyptic jokes like there's no tomorrow. Okay, that's enough of that one. That's enough. How are we doing today? Oh man, I know it is. That's rough. I saw I think different I think different people have different opinions about that, you guys. Yeah, some people are excited. Caroline's going to be it's going to be her first day of kindergarten. Gabe's going into high school. Uh, I hate the end of summer. I love summer break. So it's always real hard for me when the kids go back. You know, they finally figured out how to be peaceable with each other. It took them all summer (laughs) to get to be friends again. And then they go back into school. Anyway. But I saw on on, uh, Instagram, Brian and uh, Nicole Connolly, they're like, Living it up like, yeah, freedom, this is the first. Because their youngest is now in kindergarten. And they're like, this is it. We got so much freedom. We don't know what we're going to do. And I thought, when I saw that post, I thought maybe they'd paid off their mortgage or something. And they were, they were debt free. I didn't know. They were like celebrating like it was the year of Jubilee or something. Turns out they're just that happy to be rid of their kids for a few hours. Holy cow, you guys. All right. Well, I prepared a message, and I, I'm not feeling it. I'm, um, you don't hear me talk like that very often, do you? I prepared a message early in the week, worked on it for a lot of hours, and made huge notes, and it's good. I could share it, but it's just not what's big in here right now. So what we're going to do instead is we're going to wing it and try to find something by throwing eggs at the invisible man in the room until we hit him. Okay? Not literally. Not literally. Let's try first, uh, first Timothy chapter 1. First Timothy chapter 1, listen to the word of the Lord. When I left for Macedonia, I urged you to stay there in Ephesus and stop those whose teaching is contrary to the truth. Don't let them waste their time in endless discussion of myths and spiritual pedigrees. These things only lead to meaningless speculations which don't help people live a life of faith in God. The purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and genuine faith. But some people have missed this whole point. 
They've turned away from these things and spend their time in meaningless discussions. They want to be known as teachers of the law of Moses, but they don't know what they're talking about, even though they speak so confidently. We know that the law is good when used correctly, for the law was not intended for people who do what is right. It's for people who are lawless and rebellious, who are ungodly and sinful, who consider nothing sacred and defile what is holy, who kill their father or mother or commit other murders. The law is for people who are sexually immoral or practice homosexuality or are slave traders, liars, promise breakers, or who do anything else that contradicts the wholesome teaching that comes from the glorious good news entrusted to me by our blessed God. This is the word of the Lord. One of the things that I've noticed about human flourishing is that we don't flourish when we are loaded down with a fractured self. When the parts that make up the person are out of alignment, we don't thrive. When we're inwardly at war with ourself, we don't thrive. I think it's fascinating. Uh, Paul's identifying a misuse of the Bible and then, and then saying, look, look here's, here's the whole goal of our ministry. He compares and contrasts, doesn't he? That, that, this, that this book is not intended to be used to, uh, to impose upon people more obligations, but rather there's a gospel here that helps the conscience get free and helps, helps the guilty conscience disappear, um, helps helps a new nature come into the center of the person so that they can genuinely, uh, they genuinely become a new person. The old is gone, the new has come. So there's a pure heart that wants God, that has God-oriented desires. There's a, there's a guilty conscience that is dealt with through the blood of Jesus. And there's, and there's a faith that's laying hold of the truth of what Jesus has accomplished and who God presently is and who they presently are in Jesus. That these three things, this, this clean conscience, this sincere faith, and this pure heart, that they combine to create a heart that's lined up in the gospel and the, the natural overflow of that is love. And that when there's something less than love coming out of a person, typically one of these three things has been compromised. And religion can't address the situation. More rules is not going to address the situation. And people sometimes use the Bible for all sorts of waste of time pursuits, which we were kind of talking about in Sunday school this morning. Reading the scripture for something other than relationship with God. Reading the scripture and getting into quarrels and fights and arguments with other believers about issues that are not really paying attention to what's going on here. What's going on right here? And I've noticed that oftentimes the more argumentative we are, the more we need other people to get on with our agenda, usually it indicates that something's wrong. Like when I first got saved, I was a strong Calvinist. Uh, Calvinist being someone who believes that God is sovereign over everything that happens. Everything that happens happens for a reason. He chooses some people 
to be saved, and then they are saved because he chose them to be, and so they can't resist his will because he's God. And uh, Jesus only dies for the elect because of the mathematics of that. I could go into a lengthy talk on why I'm not a Calvinist. But I needed everyone around me to see what I believed. And so I often worked hard to convince them from the Bible that my interpretation of this Bible was correct. And the, the question is, why? Is it because I was bearing so much fruit and having so much joy and so much hope and so much peace that I couldn't help but share it and give it away? No. It was because I was convinced enough that this was the truth to want to talk about it. But I wasn't so convinced that I had enough security in it to bear good fruit in it. And so I needed to try to convince you because if I could convince you, then I could have more certainty that it was in fact the truth. So my staunch need for others to agree with me was because I struggled so much with doubt. And you get into quarrels about things that don't matter and that are not the fight we're actually in and they're not the real thing that the Holy Spirit is saying to us. And then we start to do ministry as a way of working out our issues, but we don't know it. We're we're still ministering to the old man. And Paul's like, dude, the law is not for Christians. How much do you like? I mean, think about that one. The law is not for Christians. And so we're coming to Jesus trying to figure out. We don't know we're doing it, but we're trying to work out our issues. We're trying to repair the old man instead of step into a new exchange truth that I have, I'm not the old man anymore. That there's, a, that there's a fully, just like there was a fully furnished land flowing with milk and honey, there's a fully furnished new identity for you to step into, for me to step into. And in that place... In that place, there's peace and rest, and then we start to organically just become love. And the, like again, those three things that Paul identifies in this verse, the conscience being cleansed through the cross, the faith being taking hold of, relying on, truly depending on Jesus as my functional Savior. And here's what I mean by functional Savior. Whatever you believe is your functional hell will determine your functional savior. So if your functional hell is poverty, money is your savior. If your functional hell is feeling alone, then community is your savior in God. If your functional hell is not being loved by a spouse, then your savior is your spouse. Anything, that when the scripture says, Beloved, keep yourselves from idols. They don't just go, okay, well, I don't have any statues of an image of a false god in my house that I regularly kneel to and light a candle to, so I'm good. I'm obeying that passage. Check. Now, why does John say that? Beloved, keep yourselves from idols. Because anything that you look to, to provide life to you, anything you trust in to provide satisfaction and deliverance and hope from the thing you perceive of as the great threat against your being becomes your God. So the first command in Exodus chapter 20, now I've just said the law is not for people, now I'm going to quote it. Not for, not for uh, the righteous, I'm just going to quote it here. The first commandment, you should what? Have no other gods before me. 
And Martin Luther rightly points out that if we could fulfill that, we wouldn't break any of the rest. Because where, where does the desire to steal come from? You're trusting in something else over here. I need this. I have to have this to live. So you're willing to break this and violate your conscience to go after this because this is hell. There's a lot of unspoken antecedents in those sentences. And where does this, like even go to the 10th commandment, coveting, right? If you really have God as your God, it's impossible to covet. If you're really trusting God to be your God, to satisfy your every need, to be the love you need, to be the provision you need, to provide a stable and fixed identity, to provide safety in the world and the way forward, and the resources to handle the inevitable suffering that happens. A faith that does not own the reality that life involves tons of pain hasn't even lined itself up yet with the willingness to engage the real issues. And so Paul says, look, our goal, our goal here, the goal of our instruction, everything we're doing in these preaching and and sharing and and evangelizing and gathering in homes, everything we're doing with these letter writings and, and, and praying with people and everything we're doing is meant to vibrantly connect them to a brand new life that's in Jesus. And if if it's violated with a conscience that's still holding on to shame, it erodes your capacity of your heart to really lay hold of the truth, which means an affected conscience will strangle your faith. And your faith being strangled puts the shield down, and now the unbelief creates an anxiety And sets your eyes on what James calls a divided heart, a double-minded man, unstable in all he does, who should expect nothing from the Lord when he prays. Isn't that interesting? Now why? Why should he expect nothing from the Lord? Because he's saying one thing and reaching with his heart for something else. With his mouth he's saying, give me this, Father. But with his heart he's going, I don't know, I'm going over here instead. I'm looking to you to save me, God, but not really. I'm actually in practice practicing something else. We all have a secret life. Every one of us has a secret life. And I don't mean an illicit life of sin that we don't share with others. It may be that. Because Jesus has a whole lot to say about a healthy, holy, secret life. He says, pray to your father in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Don't pray on, it's not against praying in public. He's saying, don't let the only time you pray be in public for other people to hear. It's extremely important for you to guard secret time with God. Because the you that performs for others is deception. And the you in secret is real. And then he says, same thing about fasting. When you fast, do it secretly unto the Lord. Go after the Father. Go after union with Him. Not just in public going, oh man, I'm so hungry right now because I'm so godly. I used to joke with people, one of my ongoing, ongoing jokes was, man, I'm so tired. 
because I was up all night praying for you that you'd be more like me and Jesus. Now that's supposed to be funny because that's ugly. And Jesus also talks about your gifts of generosity. Do it in secret. Why? Because it... Oh, my goodness. How could I still have a mic, but we don't have lights on? I'm confused about the nature of... All right, we'll just keep talking. Is your board... Your board has to still be running. That's intriguing. If we just, we're just going to roll with this, okay? I'll just come over near the window, or at least in front of it, so there's light. And, he's, and he talks about your gifts, your generosity. Do it in secret. Why? Because if it's only done for the, for the eyes of others, you can't believe yourself. You lose your formative, the shaping formative reality that you and God have your own thing that's real, that's going on here. You and God. You and God. You and God. That's where your life happens. It's between you and him. What he says and whether your heart believes and receives it and is transformed by what he is saying to you. And in that place, if your conscience can be dealt with, not, see, I, I love Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He has this, this expression, he, he calls it cheap grace. Cheap grace. And cheap grace is the grace we declare over ourselves as opposed to God's grace. God's grace is the grace we encounter as we actually repent, turn from our sin, and relate to God. And, the, and the, what, is, what is repentance? Is it feeling bad about your sins? And, or feeling, I should say, is repentance feeling bad about yourself? You know, what's interesting is it's possible when you consider your choices that have been wrong to weep bitter tears that have nothing to do with repentance but have everything to do with self-pity. Self-pitying tears... Don't get us free. Like Paul talks about that as being worldly sorrow. But godly sorrow gets us free. Godly sorrow is not us weeping, uh, feeling terrible about um, who we are. It's feeling terrible about what we've done and, 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 and turning to God and receiving his forgiveness. And it is possible to construct a belief system and live in a belief system that I built and I'm living in and I'm working hard for God. In other words, it's possible to be like the older brother in the parable of Luke 15 who's busily working for God out in the field, busily doing what we think God expects from us and all the while not encountering love. Not, not having a fixed and stable place of a clean conscience, a faith that's actually laying hold of the truth, i.e. the voice of God. I mean, laying hold of it. What he says is truth to me. Amen. I think this, and I'm tempted to think this, and I'm tempted to think this, but you said, and I'm laying hold. I'm digging down deep. 
I'm letting that truth come in and confront my perception of reality. My conscience is clean, not just because I say it is, not just because I say, well, Jesus paid it all, but I actually bring those parts of me that need the blood. Amen. I actually, and I, I actually come talk to him yes. and say, I'm sorry, God. Yes. Yes. Help. Will you forgive me? And there may be restitution. Like he might say, okay, go talk, to, go talk to so-and-so. Go restore what was taken. Go fix what, go clean up your mess. The grace that God gives us actually cleanses that thing called the conscience. And, okay, here's why I'm saying a lot of this right now. Shame eats people's lunch so much of the time. You know what? You want to know why people hide from God, don't have intimacy with God? One of the biggest issues is shame. One of the biggest issues is a guilty conscience in the sight of God. And now, your guilty conscience, again, has caused you not to be able to rejoice in this incredible love that this gospel is about because you feel like, even though you know in theory that Jesus loves me and died for me, that's a theory for you. Because your guilty conscience has a dry heart outside of this lake of love. Your heart is dry, you're up, and you're backed into a corner, and you're saying, yeah, theoretically I know that's true, but, but, I'm not worthy of that. I'm not worthy of that. I have a friend um, named Sean Weaver. And he was at a men's, I think it was a men's meeting, men's breakfast or something, and he was all of a sudden gripped, the Holy Spirit just gripped him with how much shame and guilt and condemnation was, was in the room. That here's, here's this incredible gospel of you getting free, that you're not who you were, and you're not held in the, in the things you did in the past, but those things can be completely wiped clean and you have a brand new self and you have a full heart that's able to receive the love of God. Boom, wide open and live by faith and live with expectation of joy. And that heart automatically just produces love naturally. And I'm going to say this, and somebody's not going to agree, and easily. Because a healthy heart has first emotional reactions that actually support a life of love. The more you have to take hold and grip to restrain those first emotional reactions, the more intensely you have to do that, those are signs that our hearts are not healed yet and are not healthy yet. So Sean was in this meeting with all these guys and he had this grieving in his spirit and this faith, this boldness came on him and he jumped up on top of the table. And started screaming about righteousness in Christ. He started yelling about how Jesus took on, he became sin in the cross, that in him we might become God's righteousness. He, it, was, it provoked him so deeply that here are these saints who've been claimed by God and who belong to God, who in fact are forgiven, but who aren't walking in forgiveness. They don't know who they are. They're listening to the wrong voices. And you know when you listen to those voices, you become a jerk. 
to the people in your life. You know how mean I am to my kids when I'm anxious about my relationship with you? Not specifically you, Jen, but in general. Because when I'm stressed about my relationship with you, this anxiety starts to whack me out internally and I lose my balance. And the next thing you know, I have no patience for little problems like this because I can't handle it. But the grace is right here. The grace is right here. To address the issue, to own the problem, to say what's really going on and get free today. Not 20 years from now, not after 17 years of counseling. Today. Because here's, here's what happens. We have traumatic experiences where we're either sinned against or we sin against others. And through those traumatic experiences, lies or beliefs about the way the world is enter into our psyche, our consciousness, through the access point of the wound. And in 20 years of counseling, of ministering to the wound, so that you don't feel that hurt quite as traumatically... If you don't actually correct the wrong belief that's presently in your heart, you don't change. But there's grace in the encounter with Jesus for truth to actually come in through that healing encounter with his love at that access point of the wound and replace the lie that is now the operating system that has caused me to see the world through a lens that is lying to me. This is why Paul says to Timothy, stay back and stop people from preaching lies. The deepest Christian conviction is that truth is therapeutic. That there's such a thing as the real world. There really is a thing called the real world. We actually exist in a real world. And the extent to which your operating system is not accurately conveying to you facts about the real world, it's, it's making it harder for you to navigate your reality effectively. It seems like such a basic thing for Jesus, doesn't it? You will, if you're truly my disciples, you'll continue in my word. And then my word will confront those unrenewed parts of your perspective. And as those unrenewed parts of your perspective are transformed, you will no longer be bound, enslaved, stuck, reacting, Hurting over things that are already taken care of. Fearing things that won't in fact happen. Believing lies about God, yourself, others, the future, the past. But there will be a different voice that you have learned to trust instead of those voices. It's not that you won't hear those voices. But there's another voice. And it's really true in life that what you focus on grows bigger. The thing you focus on the most grows bigger in your understanding. So, you know, I think Eric talked about this. When you buy a car, suddenly you see that car everywhere. And the more you go with Jesus, the more you meditate on what he says and what he thinks and what he's done and who he says you are and what his covenant is with you and what his gospel is with you and who his love is is saying you are and what everyone around you is. It's like, come on, that grows bigger and bigger and bigger until God's voice, your obsession with Jesus, your obsession with the Father, your obsession with Holy Spirit, which is cultivated in private with no one watching you, suddenly has grown so big that no matter what you, what you try, you can't, you, you can't hide 
you can't hide who you are. You could try not to speak of him. People would still see your love. You could try not to be overly brash and like public and constantly evangelizing. But your peace, your peace, your lack of being offended by little things. You're snubbed, you're ignored. You don't care. You don't get invited. You don't mind. Some injustice is done and you have a lawsuit against you. You don't need to be vindicated. You know who you are. Why not rather be wronged, you say? It's okay. And the principal thing that's driving you is how does this make, how does this bring the name of Jesus forward and benefit the gospel? A faith perspective starts to look really normal to you. A patience with people in their flaws starts to be a default rather than an impatience. And you stop using expressions like, that's inexcusable. That's inexcusable being a surefire sign of offense. You notice that in Jesus, in the Gospels, it says that he was unable to do any mighty work in his hometown of Nazareth. Because of their unbelief. And when we read it, these were the people that knew him, or so they thought. In the same way, in the same way that unbelief blocks your capacity to receive God's grace for healing, unbelief will block our capacity to receive God's grace for any other truth of his word or of his covenant. Unbelief is a joy killer. It's a Holy Spirit blocker. And unbelief enters through the wound and sits there on our shoulder and lies to us. And it will strangle us unless. Who's who's tracking with me this morning? So a clean conscience, a sincere faith, a pure heart, these are gospel property. They belong to you. They belong to me. There's a good loving father who made you. His purposes for you are reliable and faithful. I, I, when I took my sabbatical, I took my sabbatical because the elders could see I was wounded and they were trying to figure out a way to help me. They were like, um, help him, please, Jesus. I preached a sermon. I had a breakdown, emotional breakdown during the middle of the sermon and they saw it and said, actually, y'all said to them, can you help him? He's not doing Okay. So I went on sabbatical, went to counseling, which was okay. I wouldn't say it was great. It definitely is not where the transformation took place. And then I came back from sabbatical. And when I came back from sabbatical, the wounds... How many of you are convinced that life involves lots of spiritual warfare? Is there ever a ceasefire? Is there like a season where the devil's like, Mish, he looks like he's beat. I better, I better give him a rest. It's not even fair at this point. And how about the flesh? Does your, does your, 
Does your lower nature that's impulsive and just wants pleasure and comfort now, does that give it a rest? Does it say, ah, he looks like maybe he could use a break. And how about the culture, the world that's under the control of the evil one? Does that stop trying to lull our faith to sleep with, hey, buy this, pursue this, get this achievement. Ha-ha, this will satisfy. So there's not really a cessation of war as long as we're breathing. And so I'm on sabbatical, and for me, sabbatical was put the weapons down for the first time in, in, in 10 years of being in leadership, because it does intensify the battle to be in leadership, because you're, you're strategic. You know, shoot the general in the head. That's a genius warfare strategy. Duh. Usually works pretty good. Right? They couldn't hit us from... Last words. So I come back from sabbatical, and... Wounds have come to the surface that I did not know were there from 10 years of being on the front lines. And I'm asking deep questions like, should I be a part of Christianity still? Is it worth being a part of a church ever? What kind of idiot would be like, beat me up on purpose as a job? Like, that's my job, get beat up. I just want to help people. Beat me up. That'll be great. Good relationship. I show you grace. You don't show me any. Yay. Which is why I was crying the other day when you guys forgave me. Because it's not been my experience a lot of the time. It's like my job is to extend grace, but don't have grace extended to me very often. And it was truly blowing my mind. You know what I'm talking about? So I come back from that, and I, don't, I could hardly get into the building. And there's a bunch of principles to, from that, that experience. And I don't want to talk forever about it. By the way, what time is it? Oh, good. We're, we got time. But I learned so much during that time. I was coming back from sabbatical, and I was causing a lot of pain to the leadership team. Because I was, these wounds were coming up, and they didn't know what to do. And they were not doing what I thought they should do. So in my wounded condition, they were not treating me how I felt they should, but in fact, they were like, your preaching is bad, and you need to do this better, and you need to do that better, and change the following five things about you, because we love you, but stop. And I was like, what? And of course, later on, it was like, oh, yeah, we were wrong about five of those. That's no big deal. But our intention was good, and I'm like, help me. So I hurt Brian Zook real bad, and I hurt Mark, and I hurt Dennis, because I was, I was, sp- I was spinning out of control. Because the wound had come up and it wasn't healed. And guess what else came up with the wound? Crazy lies. Crazy lies. These guys are against me. This church isn't safe. People are going to use you and throw you away. There's nothing you can do about it. Crazy lies spinning out of control. And then, of course, what do I do? I start hurting the people who are just trying to love me. Like a wounded dog snapping at anyone who comes near. Should I just end the sermon right there, Carrie? So I lay on the couch when I finally realize what's going on. Of course, I don't realize fully what's going on. But what I realize is I'm hurting the people I love. And this is not okay. And when I finally realize I'm hurting the people I love, this was my reasoning, you guys. Well, I guess I'll just go to hell by myself and stop hurting people. 
and taking them down too. And I laid on the couch and I gave up. Because better to suffer alone than cause everyone I love to suffer. And I fell back into darkness. I thought, it's over for me. And all of a sudden, God switched my perspective and opened my eyes. And I saw the elders' intentions. In a moment, in a second, I saw their intentions. And the second I saw their intentions, all the hurt went out the window too. It's not that I agreed with what they did. It just it didn't matter once I understood their intentions. So I apologized. Brian Zook appreciated it. <laughs> and said, you may want to call the others as well. That was really scary. But the scary wasn't over. I stood on the steps outside this church holding, I think, maybe Layla at the time. And I stood there looking at the building and it was like, you guys were terrifying. Like, what could be more terrifying than Christians? And, and I stood there holding the baby for comfort. Did you ever do that? The baby's crying and you're like, oh, praise God for that. I need this. <sighs> and somebody walked past me. Hey, Tim, good to see you. Uh-huh. You coming in? I don't know. Okay. Walks in. I finally forced myself in the front door like, okay, I'm okay. Nothing bit me. No, nothing jumped up on me. No one drop kicked me. Well, why would they? They're holding a baby. It's for defense. You wouldn't hit a man wearing glasses and holding a baby, would you? <laughs> you, wouldn't, you wouldn't hit a man with a face tattoo that says, stop it. Yeah, they would. So then I stood in the back by those double doors, and I was like, oh, man, I don't know if I can do this. Jesus, you need to help me. And I'm telling you guys, literal fear, literal fear, fear. Because even after you know you heard from God, that doesn't mean you've walked it out yet. So I started my walk, and I walked, and I did what I did. I turned that way and started coming up this, this aisle. And as I walked up the aisle... You scary people. All of you are so scary. I'm so vulnerable. Just one word could crush me. I'm so wounded. And people said things like, Hey, Tim. You guys weren't scary at all. You were nice. It was weird. So weird. And I sat in my pew and thought, What is happening? We started to sing, and during the singing, Wendy Davis put her hand on my shoulder and started to pray for me, and I was weeping, and instantly I was in a vision, and in the vision, I was, I was in the waves in the dark. I was in the ocean in a storm, big waves, going to kill me in the dark, and what in the world is that? Hey, guys, we're trying to have church. I'm in a vision, I'm in the waves, I'm in the dark, and I'm thinking, I'm dying. I don't understand where I am. And I see Jesus in this vision, and he is yelling, at, he's yelling my name, Tim, at the top of his lungs. He is searching for me. 
And he's, I would say he's screaming. The top of his lungs. And it's raining on him. I can't tell if anyone's crying. There's too much rain. But I'm crying. I feel like he's crying. And he's yelling. Finally, he catches up to me and pulls me up out of the water. And then he says this, Tim. In the past, you've understood and had faith in my gospel for me. But now I'm going to build your understanding and build your faith in my people. And in an instant, I knew I had a partial gospel. We probably all still do. And he was telling me the next upgrade was right at the point of my wound. Why am I saying this? I'm saying, I didn't know that. I didn't know I was limping. I thought the problem was other people. I thought the problem was the world, the church, other people. I didn't know that it was what I failed to see in terms of the truth that was an operating system, a lens through which I was experiencing and interpreting my reality incorrectly that was causing me to become something less than love and I couldn't hide it from any of you. And guess what? I wish I could say I have arrived. But the truth is every one of us is somewhere on a journey toward Christ-like health. Somewhere on a journey. And other people have things to teach us and learn from us. But yeah, these three, these three things, man. A clean conscience so that you don't withdraw from his love. A heart that can lay hold of truth because you've had Jesus work those issues of comfort and safety and then healing that enable you to say, okay. And a lot of the times that comes down to real simple things. It comes down to repentance and forgiveness. Turning away from something and disagreeing with something and making a new agreement with truth and forgiving what was done to you. I mean, really forgiving. And how can you, how can you forgive something when you don't let Jesus even comfort and heal the wound first? So don't hear me say I'm against counseling, for crying out loud, by what I said earlier. But it's critically important to invite Jesus into that wounded spot. And then take this truth and lay hold of it. That's what faith is doing, is laying hold of truth. See, in all through the Old Testament, we find God actually revealed a lot of this stuff way before Jesus even came on the scene. Where David says, you desire truth in the inmost being. Or he'll say, May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Or he'll say, uh, after he sinned, he'll say, create in me a clean heart, a willing and right spirit. Notice he doesn't say, repair my old nasty heart. Again, this is not us working on our flesh or our old self. This is us literally crossing over a new line and saying, that's not who I am. Anymore. I am who you say I am. And, and this stuff is so simple, guys. I'm talking about the simplest stuff of Christianity there is. That he loves you, that he forgives you, that he accepts you, and that he has a whole new identity for you. Yes. And then as you relate to him in that way, you find incredible, vibrant, whole, full life. And guess what happens? Hope. Yes. 
hope springs up. It's interesting, Paul, Paul points out the connection between experienced mercy and hope in 2 Corinthians very strong and repetitively. Since we have such a mercy, we're very, since we have such a hope, we're very bold. But what's the hope? The mercy we have in Christ. We've been loved. It has nothing to do with what we earned or deserved. It's, and that's an issue, dude. Receiving. It's real hard to receive without earning, without deserving. And, and Grace looks at us and says, Deserve? Why do you think what you're worth has anything to do with what you deserve? You're worth the blood of Jesus. You deserve hell. No one's keeping score. I'm worth his love. But I can never earn it and I certainly don't deserve it. You know why I'm worth it? Because his opinion is fact. My opinion is just an opinion. Like, I think Carl's wrong. Pepsi is better than Coke. But Jesus' opinion on Pepsi and Coke is fact. Okay. It's so important, you guys. Do you know how many young men struggling with lust have a violated conscience that causes them to withdraw from God? And then they feel like a hypocrite if they have anything in their life that actually has got faith going on in it? And so the enemy of their souls, instead of, instead of us gathering around, knowing what's going on, because we can't know what's going on until they tell us, right? This was me as a kid. Violated conscience. Because guess what? Guess who's a sinner? I was certainly a pretty, pretty aggressive and highly, highly effective sinner. And my conscience went crazy. And I couldn't really believe God loved me. So I'm at a hell's, heaven's gates, hell's flames event, and they scare the hell out of me. That was their strategy. You're going to die. You're going to burn. It's going to hurt. Me, I don't want that. Well, then come up here and sign this card. I doubt that's going to work, but I feel horrible. I'm going forward. And then there's a man in a Hawaiian shirt in the back saying, now, tell me what your sins are. And I'm like, you'll fall out of your chair if I tell you my sins. You don't want to know. You can't handle the truth. It's a 12-year-old channeling my... Who caught that movie reference? You can't handle it. There we go. Who was the actor? Jack Nicholson. So I didn't confess my, my sins to this Hawaiian shirt dude. Why? Shame. So right there at the point of decision, I was stillborn. Right there at the point. Because I couldn't accept, I couldn't bring myself to receive that kind of mercy. And I just wonder how many of us are right there right now today. I mean, I serious. I just wonder how many in the room right now would love to receive that kind of mercy, but it's, you're just thinking my sins are too great. If that's you, I'm serious. There is grace for you. You don't even have to confess it to the Hawaiian shirt, dude. That's, that, that doesn't, that's immaterial. That, you may find that helpful. But the, the real issue is can you confess it to God? Can you receive grace from God? whether or not Hawaiian shirt guys involved. All right. Who's on the prayer team today?
You know, if you're sitting here and the Spirit of God is just nudging you, the hardest part is standing up. That first step, you'll get propelled forward, telling you, I've been there. And what Tim was saying, what we focus on grows. And when you're in that place of darkness, and it is darkness, and I've been there, you just want out, but you don't know how to get out. I'm telling you, you can come forward, you can receive prayer, and you can leave different than the way you came in. You don't have to stay in the prison. There are a group of us praying over the service today. And the words that kept being said is, and we didn't know what Tim was going to be speaking on, was today the captives are set free. The prison doors will be open and there will be boldness to step out and come forward and receive prayer receive and if you don't want to step out and you want somebody to come and pray for you just raise your hand and one of us will come over and and pray for you okay don't leave here the same way that you came in it doesn't have to be that way i'm telling you from personal experience as well 